this poem has been banned here and there because of the word jazz, which some people have considered a sexual reference. That was not my intention, though I have no objection if it helps anybody. But I was thinking of music. Hi, I'm Kevin Larimer, Editor-in-Chief of Poets and Writers. And I'm Melissa Falavino, Senior Editor of Poets and Writers. And this is Ampersand, the Poets and Writers Podcast. In this episode, we'll be talking about the great Gwendolyn Brooks, whose centennial is being celebrated this year, and the story behind the fascinating Pulitzer Prize jury letter that led to her winning the prestigious prize in 1950. We also have an interview with Lydia Yuknovich about her new novel, The Book of Joan. And we'll be talking to writers, editors, and teachers about what they're reading and writing and how they're using that work to respond to the current political climate. And so much more. So stick around. was out. May, June. It's our eighth annual writing contest issue. And you know, everyone loves a good writing contest. Especially if you win. Right. But beyond the sort of competitive arena, grants and awards can have a significant effect on not only the lives of writers and their work, but also the shape of American literature itself. So in addition to listings of more than 100 upcoming contest deadlines, in this issue, we decided to take a look at award programs that are especially influential, including those that support socially engaged writing, in a piece titled Contests with a Vision, Prizes with a Focus on Social Justice. Yeah, these days, um, literature that offers a sort of social mission or a vision of a just and equitable world feels pretty urgent, I think. So associate editor Dana Isakawa reached out to five organizations that sponsor awards given for work with some kind of social vision to write about each prize and why the literature they champion matters so much right now. Right. And it's really inspiring to hear from people encouraging that kind of cultural engagement. And you know, speaking of inspiring, yes, we have an incredible feature on Gwendolyn Brooks in this issue. It's a long piece by poet and Harvard Review poetry editor Major Jackson. This year marks the 100th anniversary of the birth of the legendary poet, and there are books being published and events being scheduled. Gwendolyn Brooks is, of course, one of the most highly regarded, highly influential, and widely read poets of the 20th century. You might say she's a literary icon. You could definitely say that. She was poetry consultant to the Library of Congress, which is what they used to call it before they called it the Poet Laureate. Mm. Uh, she was the first black woman to hold that position. Uh, she was also the Poet Laureate of the state of Illinois, and she was uh, the first black author to win the Pulitzer Prize in 1950 for her second book, Annie Allen, when she was 32 years old. And what Major Jackson does in our new issue is take a close look at the letter written by the Pulitzer Prize jury. And they produce this sort of astounding document. Uh, and one of the things they do is they argue not to award Robert Frost with his fifth Pulitzer. Yeah, he won the Pulitzer four times. Yeah, and you know, in 1949, the complete poems of Robert Frost was published. So the jury had to kind of sidestep that, and at one point stated, an award to Robert Frost would be a confession that current poetry is so lifeless that we have to turn again to the one poet we can cite as a contemporary tradition. 
Yeah, it's pretty amazing to see that kind of thing in the historical record nearly 70 years after it was written. Totally. And they also sort of diss William Carlos Williams, uh, saying he lacks self-criticism. And then they offer some pretty cringe-inducing statements that reflect the kind of racial distinctions and judgments that were prevalent in the late 1940s and early 1950s. It's a really amazing document. It really is. And in addition to that, online at PW.org, we have an excerpt from A Surprised Queenhood in the New Black Sun, The Life and Legacy of Gwendolyn Brooks by Angela Jackson, which is forthcoming in May from Beacon Press. Right. We have the entire first chapter. So definitely check that out. But now let's listen to Gwendolyn Brooks read from probably her most famous poem, We Real Cool. This was recorded on May 3rd, 1983 at the Guggenheim Museum, and our friends at the Academy of American Poets were nice enough to share this with us from their archive of recordings at poets.org. Thank you. I guess I'd better offer you We Real Cool. Most young people know me only by that poem. I don't mean that I dislike it, but I would prefer it if the textbook compilers and the anthologists would assume that I've written a few other poems. I wrote it because I was passing by a pool hall in my community one afternoon during school time, and I saw therein a uh, little bunch of boys, I say here in this poem, seven, and they were shooting pool. But instead of asking myself, why aren't they in school? I asked myself, I wonder how they feel about themselves. And just perhaps they might have considered themselves contemptuous of the establishment, or at least they wanted to feel that they were contemptuous of the establishment, might want to thumb their noses at the establishment. And I represented the establishment with the month of June, which is a nice, gentle, non-controversial, enjoyable, pleasant, fragrant month that everybody loves. Uh, This poem has been banned here and there because of the word jazz, which some people have considered a sexual reference. That was not my intention, though I have no objection if it helps anybody. (laughs) But I was thinking of music. The pool players, seven at the golden shovel. We real cool, we left school, we lurk light, we strike straight, we sing sin, we then gin, we jazz June, we die soon. In the new issue, we also have an interview with Lydia Yuknovich about her new novel, The Book of Joan, which is out this month from Harper, and it's a near-future dystopian reimagining of the story of Joan of Arc. I won't give too much away, but in a nutshell, the Earth has been ravaged by war, and a celebrity-turned-dictator has sort of taken over, and he leads an elite ruling class in a space station above the dying planet, extracting what's left of its resources. And that's where a young girl warrior comes along. 
Um, it's a really excellent novel and one that's also kind of eerily prescient. Um, celebrity dictator aside, it's about the destruction of the earth at the hands of humans, violence and war, gender. But it's also a love story, both love between and among humans, but also at the heart of it, it's a it's an ode to the earth. Uh, it's a great book, and she's such a great writer. You know, she won the Writer's Exchange Award from Poets and Writers in 1997 in the early part of her career. She's also the author of two previous novels, including The Small Backs of Children, which won the Oregon Book Award for Fiction in 2015, three story collections, a memoir, The Chronology of Water, and a book of criticism about narrative and war called Allegories of Violence. Last year, she gave a TED Talk that will also become a book this fall. It's called Misfits Manifesto. It's a great title. But The Chronology of Water, which was published in 2010, is where I first got to know her work. Um, It's a really incredible book about her very tumultuous early life, and it was kind of a touchstone for a lot of women and queer people, and was this kind of formally inventive meditation on love, loss, violence, sexuality, and the body, which plays a pretty significant role in most of her work. She even started her own school about it. She did, Corporeal Writing. She started that in Portland, Oregon in 2010 um, and leads workshops on writing about and through the body. And that focus plays a pretty big role in her new book, too. It does. Um, So humans have essentially devolved and no longer have any physical markers to distinguish sex or gender or race. And those left living in this ship above Earth, including the character Christine, Um, who leads a group of rebels against the dictator, use skin grafts to literally burn words into their flesh as a way of preserving stories and lives in this new world where there are no pens or paper or computers to write on. So it's really cool, and our contributor Amy Gall talked with Lydia about that and a lot of other things, including celebrity culture and dictatorships and the climate crisis and the urgency of making art. And, of course, her obsession with Joan of Arc. Yes, she actually once licked a Joan of Arc statue. Of course she did. (laughs) But you will have to read the whole interview to find out about that. Uh, For now, here is a clip of Amy Gall talking with Lydia Yuknovich about the Book of Joan. So I wrote this like more than two years ago. It's a little trippy for me to see, you know, current events and the apocalypse in our faces. Yeah, that was actually a question, like, what were you looking at? Were you looking at specific governments or regimes when you were working on this book? Well, yeah, I was looking at ours. And I was, in particular, what I was noticing was a sort of frightening closing of the gap between financial industries Mm. and what we're walking around pretending is our government. And at the same time, I was also watching the zenith of celebrity culture Mm. in ways that both, you know, delight us, of course, but creep me out. And so when I was thinking of those two things, you know, this terrible, monstrous celebrity culture and this terrible, monstrous financial, you know, big open mouth getting ready to consume government and this mass of people, which is us, who had seemed to have kind of given up our identities in favor of becoming consumers. Yeah. It's like nothing in our life we don't consume anymore. But, you know, so those were the kinds of things I was looking at and worried about. When, so did you like complete a pretty much like finished draft of this two years ago or were you then working on it like as these movements were kind of like taking place? Well, that's what's creepy. I finished it, yeah, a couple wow. of years ago. okay. 
So it was really hard not to just take things from culture and stick them in. Right. <laughs> and, you know, Trump is included in what I was noticing about celebrity culture. But I first started worrying about that like 30 years ago. And I, <laughs> my, my sort of heroine for that was Kathy Acker. So I feel like I've been tracking that my whole adult life. But all the, you know, all the reality TV shows and the, the glory of the celebrity, not just movie stars, but talk show people. And so Trump was kind of on my radar, but I wasn't thinking of him specifically until much later. Yeah. Do you think the book, like, if you could write the book now, would it be any different? Ooh. Well, to be honest with you, I'd probably fuck it up. When you know what's going on, you have to fight and resist much differently. And the, the knowledge of the experience kind of robs you of the imaginative impulse. Right. So the not knowing is what brought about the story and the being able to pitch a fierce imagination for it with nothing to stop me is what made the story come out the way it did. And I don't know the answer to this question, but I suspect that having consciousness about it would would make me more polemical or more diet like I on Facebook I can't keep my fucking mouth yeah. down. <laughs> yeah, totally. Totally. Every, like every moment of the day I feel a rage I have to go I used to call it swimming, but now I call it punch water. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I don't know the the distance you kind of need to work in artistic production would be gone. I don't know. I, I really don't know the answer to that, but I think you know what I mean. I do. I do. Do you think, because like, I mean, the book is very dark, but there is definitely hope in it. And certainly the end, I think, has a lot of hope in it. Do you see hope in what you in what you wrote? And, and I'm wondering too, like, do you think it, like your writing would have been less hopeful had you written it now? Yes, because I feel doom in my gut every day, even though my intention is to resist for as long as it takes. And it was my intention to produce a hopefulness, but I was trying to produce it in seriously redefined terms. Yes. I, was, I was trying to redefine what we mean by a love story Yes, um, and the trope of the love story. Right. And I was trying... I don't know how well this succeeds, but I was trying to radicalize what we mean when we talk about the energy force that is love, even though that makes it sound a little bit like the fifth element. (laughs) (laughs) But that this Joan character would redirect her life force toward the planet, and then she loves this other woman, but she's sort of afraid to love her because she thinks it'll kill her. (laughs) And then also the idea that we need to remake our myths We need to remake our archetypes and our myths and take the stories different places than we have. Um, Because all our mighty myths lead to war and destruction and the hero's journey doesn't fit all of our bodies. It just fits the sort of white male body. So I was shooting for some pretty mega hope, but it's never going to look like what other people mean when they say hope. excited by the fact that Joan, a sort of retelling of Joan of Arc was at the heart of this book. Cause for me, it's like such a like queer touchstone. And I'm wondering like what, 
what drew you to her as this character that you were going to use as the storyteller, sort of? Well, so there's personal obsession. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I've met, you probably have too, I've just met gazillions of women who fell for her in one way or yeah. another. And I suspect there's a good reason for that. You know, she's the lone, you know, female figure of might. And she's kind of a genderless, not exactly genderless, but gender bending figure that women can claim. And she, well, she was badass. Yeah. <laughs> and she's a figure of war who doesn't fit the male mythos of war. And so it, it then, so my whole life I've been interested in war stories and trying to rewrite them. So also always been interested in girl myths and trying to rewrite those. And so she is the figure where those two obsessions cross. And so, again, I was also so filled with fear and rage about what people happened in terms of celebrity culture that I wanted to retrieve a figure who could interrupt that, but not one that would repeat the male hero story, which I'm so sick of I could eat glass. <laughs> yes. Um, but I, I love her... I mean, none of us know her exact story, but we right. have pieces of things. And I love the idea that she retains the possibility of interrupting our biggest archetypal story of all, which is the hero's journey. Um, and I hate what happened to her, but it's also completely emblematic of what we do to strong women, right? no matter where they fall in history including whatever one's thoughts are about Hillary Clinton. You know, if you get a strong, mouthy, fighting woman, she will be burnt. So for all those reasons, kind of personal. I mean, when I say I fell for her, I totally, she was my first fantasy. Mm-hmm. She, she first kind of sexual understanding of my body. Yeah. Um, so I fell for her personally. And then later in life, I had, I fell for her culturally and, I don't know. I'm not trying to pin her down as a, like, Lydia's version of this icon. Right. (laughs) I'm just trying to open up an old story so we can look at it over again. And I actually believe anything that can be storied culturally can be de-storied and then re-storied. And it's one of the only ways we can retain hope. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to go back to, you were talking about writing and signification. I, I really wanted to go back to the uh, the skin graphs. Like, how did you come up with that idea? Well, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so I've been in my past part of an SM community. Mm-hmm. Not right now, but I have been in the past. Mm-hmm. And I'm a person who takes tattoos very seriously. And I think that our bodies carry a kind of writing on them in terms of bruises and scars and wrinkles and um, all the marks of the body are like a map of our lives. So I think of our bodies as written anyway. Hmm. And then I have a I have an intense relationship to uh, the pleasure pain principle. <laughs> Since that is a territory I am not afraid to go into, I brought this character with me. 
and I, I wanted her to take what she does to her body as seriously as possible. And I wanted marking the body to stand for something besides self-harm. And the history of body modification has always fascinated me. But this one seemed, this one came about literally because Joan was burned. I wanted to find the other side of what burning might mean. Oh, yeah. I wanted to take it out of a binary and, you know, open up the other meaning. That burning could mean meaning making creation instead of just destruction. Well, it was interesting, too, that, like, the graphs had very different meanings for different people on seal. Like, it was, like, a very, like, stylish, popular thing on the one hand that was almost empty of meaning. And then, like, this very deep subversive thing simultaneously yes that's my commentary on literature oh okay i'm thrilled that the entire spectrum of literature exists. <laughs> uh-huh. i am yeah i really am and we need all of it but i am from the camp who wishes literature would break people's hearts open Maybe I'll change, I don't worry of this issue is the response of writers to what we commonly refer to as the current political climate, (laughs) which is rather dark and stormy these days. Mm, Dark and stormy. That's a good drink. It is. Dark rum and ginger beer, right? Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. But dark and stormy isn't what you want in politics. No. And these days, the threats seem to be coming from all sides. And so writers are responding and resisting in different ways. The lead story in our News and Trends section is about two authors, Anna March and Paula Wyman, who, like many of us, were stunned by the presidential election and were faced with the question of, you know, does writing really matter now? Yes, the answer is yes. It is. And Anna and Paula each started their own journals, Roar Feminist Magazine and Scoundrel Time, as a reply. Uh, And they also wanted to foster artistic expression in the face of political repression and fear. And especially in the case of Roar, to harness the energy of the arts community for political activism. Which, thankfully, there seems to be more and more of these days. That's right. And it's a good thing because, you know, the entire sort of creative ecosystem is being threatened by the president's budget proposal, which, as everyone knows by now, eliminates the National Endowment for the Arts and the National Endowment for the Humanities, as well as the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, which helps fund PBS, NPR, and, you know local public radio stations all across the country. Along with a host of other essential agencies and programs, all to pay for a massive military buildup. Right. Priorities. Anyway, it's all rather absurd because the NEA, which of course offers funding for individuals and organizations, including poets and writers, to support our magazine and our website, is currently operating on a budget of $147.9 million. Which, for the record, is about four one-hundredths of a percent of the total 
federal budget. Right, which is $3.9 trillion. Mm -hmm. So I asked our contributing editor, Kevin Nance, to take a deep dive into the numbers and give us a historical perspective on threats to the NEA, because unfortunately, this is not the first time it's been under attack. I also reached out to nine authors who have received individual creative writing fellowships over the past 40 years to talk about the impact those $25,000 grants had on their lives and their careers. Authors such as Joy Harjo, Peter Ho Davies, Anthony Dewar, Kamiko Hahn, and others. So you can find that, as well as Kevin Nance's article in the new issue, online. And of course, if you want to speak up and reach out to save the NEA, uh, you can call your senators and representatives. Right. And a good place to start is litnet.org forward slash save the NEA, where you'll find links to contact information for members of the Senate and the House. So LitNet is short for Literary Network, which is a coalition of organizations that was actually co-founded by poets and writers back in 1992 in response to the freedom of expression controversies surrounding the NEA. Right. uh, That was Andre Serrano and Robert Maplethorpe. Yes. And, you know, with the help of LitNet, the NEA was saved. Most notably, the individual fellowships for writers were saved. You know, there used to be individual NEA grants for all sorts of artists visual artists, dancers, and they were discontinued in 1995, but not those for writers. And it's because enough people spoke up about how important they are, and they worked to save them. Power of the people. The power of writers. Mm -hmm. As I wrote in my editor's note, we are creators, and that is really powerful. Mm -hmm. And that was evident back in February when we were at the AWP conference in Washington, D.C. That's right. We both went to that candlelight vigil for freedom of expression outside the White House. We did. Um, That was really cool. Kazim Ali, Ross Gay, Carolyn Forche were there. It was a really cool event. Yeah, my kids were with me, Mm -hmm. and I was really proud that they could witness that. And while we were at AWP, I spoke with a number of writers, editors, and teachers about how the election and the current political climate have impacted their lives and work, what they're writing, reading, teaching, and how they're using that work to respond and resist. I'm Jessica Ankeny, a poet and poetry editor for the Black Robert Review. Um, I think the election has definitely affected my personal life in a lot of ways. I stopped reading as much. I read the news a lot more. Um, But also I've been really interested in, for the Black Robert Review, how people are trying to organize their own personal chaos inside themselves and trying to figure out how we can mobilize, um, not only as a group of writers, but also inside of ourselves. And especially, I've been reaching out to non-writers who aren't used to doing things like this. And a lot of students I had when I taught in Queens who are Muslim and immigrants um, to see how they too are organizing so we can sort of see similarities and differences between. My name is Rigoberto Gonzalez. I'm a writer and a professor. I believe that political climate um, has made us very much aware of the world outside and it's, it's, it's kind of difficult to negotiate because we've always taught that as writers we have to lock out the world outside in order to concentrate, in order to place our energies onto the page. But now this new challenge uh, is, is really uh, forcing us to reflect a little harder, to think a little more in more sophisticated ways of how to, how to shape our imaginations into a language that's going to uh, effectively communicate that we are living in this time. We no longer can, can pretend that we are right in a vacuum. That's gone, that conversation is gone. We no longer can pretend that, what it, that we are not political writers. We are living in a political time. So now it's a matter of, well, let's own it. Let's, 
knowing that those are times that we live in, what can we do to better prepare ourselves to communicate more effectively? Because we, what we write now, what we say now, is going to matter 10, 20, 30 years from now. And everybody's going to look back and say, what were those people saying? What were those people doing during that time? So it's important to really have something, uh, have a, a, a level of clarity, have a level of sophistication, and a level, a level of agency over our writing and our thinking and our creativity. Hi, I'm Amy Mang. I'm a poet. I received my MFA from NYU. I'm currently reading On the Origins of Totalitarianism by Hannah Arendt. When I first tried to get this book from New York Public Library, uh, there were holds on every copy. Um, and then when I tried to buy it from Word Bookstore in Greenpoint, my neighborhood, uh, the bookstore had already sold two copies earlier that day, and me and my friend bought the last two copies. So reading this book has been uh, it seems very familiar. It seems very of the moment, um, which is sort of terrifying. Uh, but hopefully we'll be able to turn to books like this and learn something, um, or at least be comforted that other people have lived through this and survived to write about it. My name is Amy Beth Wright. I am a creative nonfiction writer and a writing professor. And I think that I have become a little complacent with my reading and the political climate has allowed me to be quite vigilant about um, just plunging into a lot of contemporary journalism and being sure to read all the way through my New Yorker and my salon and um, and to also read some fiction that I know is going to address other cultures like Between the Assassins I just began reading and um, it's going to just uh, address other other backgrounds and experiences that inform the contemporary climate. Uh, my name is Ben Perkert. I'm a poet. Uh, I'm also a teacher at Rutgers. Uh, wow, given the current situation uh, I feel like almost the most important thing is that we all just read and read constantly and read widely and read diversely. Uh, one book in particular that blew me away is Renee Gladman's Calamities, which uh, is a book that just, in my mind, spans genre and is just brilliant on the page. And so I love a book that when I go through it, at the end of it, I'm not quite sure entirely what I've read or where it belongs on my bookshelf. And that sort of challenge feels like almost all the more relevant now, where things are being classified and codified in ways that I'm not comfortable with. And so, Renee Gladman, someone to read. Hi, my name is Jenny Shia. I'm an educator. I teach essay writing. And um, since the election, I've been thinking about the pressing need to teach my students how to read and evaluate sources, to think critically, deeply, and also to argue well and with good evidence. Um, and along those lines, I've also recently brought in John Berger's essay, Photographs of Agony, which is all about how photographs and sort of shocked emotional reactions actually have the power to depoliticize and distract viewers away from thinking about um, rational political ways of engaging. it for this episode. We'll be back in June when we'll be talking about some of the summer's best debut fiction. And literary agents. And a very exciting new novel by an excellent writer that we just can't talk about yet. It's top secret. That's classified. We are not at liberty to discuss it. So to find out what it is, you'll just have to tune in next time. To Ampersand. The Poets and Writers Podcast. Podcast.
Ampersand is a production of Poets and Writers, Inc., the nation's largest nonprofit organization serving creative writers. Ampersand is edited and mixed by Melissa Falavino. Music for this episode was provided by Poddington Bear, The Silent Partner, Ari De Niro, X Hex, and Yacht. Subscribe to Ampersand on iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, or through our website, where you'll find photos, articles, and ephemera for each episode, including an excerpt of A Surprised Queenhood in the New Black Sun, The Life and Legacy of Gwendolyn Brooks by Angela Jackson, plus articles about the NEA and our news and trends story on writers, editors, and resistance at pw.org forward slash ampersand.